0: Open your Bible, please, to the book of Numbers, chapter number 32. I had said last week that I thought we might be, last Wednesday night, on our final sermon uh, in the book of Numbers as we had been... passing through the wilderness with the children of Israel. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. It seems like we've been in the wilderness for 40 years on these Wednesday nights. And I had hoped and thought that maybe last week would be our last sermon on the wilderness. But there are two other topics that I want us to deal with, one tonight and one next week, and then we will be out of the wilderness for sure, okay? So you can either consider this to be bonus preaching Or prolonged misery, however you look at it. But we've got another week in the wilderness anyway, and I'm hoping this will be helpful. The title of the message tonight is Don't Settle for Less Than God's Best. Don't settle for less than God's Best. Maybe you're in the process right now of trying to make a decision. You're praying about something and seeking God's will on whether it's a relationship or a purchase or a job or something. And you're thinking, Should I do that or should I not do that? Well, You should do what God leads you to do. But one of the things that you should not do is to settle for less than what his best would be in your life. Now, in Numbers chapter 32, I want us to read the first 23 verses. Maybe we'll skip one verse, but I want us to read through the first 23 verses. And then, having seen what is happening here, uh, I'll come back at the end, and I want to make five observations from from what I learned from from this passage of Scripture. Now, before we begin reading, let me say this. At this point in the wilderness experience... We're getting, the children of Israel are getting very close to the promised land. In fact, they are in the backyard of the promised land. They are so close to the promised land at this point that they can see the Jordan River. Remember, and I should have put a map on the screen tonight and failed to do it. But when they came up out of Egypt and came through that wilderness, they came into Israel, into the Holy Land from the backside, from the east side from the Jordanian side. If you see a map, you know, this is horrible. I should have put it on the screen. But here's a map. Here's Israel right here. Here's the Mediterranean Sea to the west. And to the east, you have Syria, and then you have Jordan. And the Jordan River, of course, starts there, but it goes all through here. So they're coming in to the promised land, not from the Mediterranean seaside. They're coming from the backside, crossing the Jordan River and going into the promised land. So in Numbers chapter 32, the children of Israel, after all these years of wandering, they're in the backyard of the promised land. And as they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River, they come to some very Beautiful, we would call it pasture. Just some beautiful land that is a was a great place to raise livestock. And so, two and a half of the tribes. Remember, there are twelve tribes of Israel. Two and a half of the tribes: Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Now, as we read this tonight, we don't read about the half tribe of Manasseh until the end of this. But these tribes are together, and they say to Moses, "Moses, this land." That we're in right now is so beautiful, and it is so wonderful, we don't even want to go into the promised land. We don't need to cross that Jordan River. Please, Moses, let us stay right here. Well, as we'll see, when they said that, it made Moses angry. Now, when, when he got angry, he didn't sin. His anger was justified anger. And he, in essence, said to them, I can't believe that after all these years and now we're so close to the promised land, what God has had for us all this time, that you are saying, we don't want to go to the promised land. This is good enough for us. Let us live here. It's an interesting passage of scripture. And I think God, I mean, I don't think, I know that God has much to say to us tonight. Through this. So let's begin chapter 32 and verse number 1. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation saying, now in verse 3, they're just mentioning all these different, what we would call, cities or regions in this land. And then in verse 4, they say, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Well, the truth is, all the tribes had livestock. It wasn't just that these two tribes had livestock. They all had livestock. But they're saying, we have livestock. Please let us stay here. Verse 5, therefore they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which I, the Lord, has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not give go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and he swore on oath, saying, surely none of the men who came up from Egypt, from 20 years old and above, shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. And then in verse 12, he says, except for Caleb and except for Joshua, for they have Holy follow the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. And so when they make the request to Moses, Moses, this land is good enough. Let us live in this land. Let this be our inheritance. We don't need the promised land. Made Moses angry. And Moses said to these two two tribes two and a half tribes you're committing the same sin that 40 years ago your parents committed when they went into the promised land and they explored it and they said oh it's a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey but there're giants in the land and there's no way that we could conquer those giants and they brought back that negative report and because of that negative report now the people that were scared to go into the promised land they were no longer walking with faith they're walking in fear and so Moses is comparing Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to those ten spies who brought back the negative report from the promised land. Now in verse 16, the story, it it unfolds even more. Then they came near to him and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place and our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance, for we will not return with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Jordan. Then Moses said to them, if you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war and All of your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before you, and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. Now look at verse 23. But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and your sin will find you out. Now Moses says to them, in essence, if that's what you want to do, I'm going to give you this land. But here's the deal. You've got to go across the Jordan. The men do. You've got to go into the promised land. You've got to fight the Canaanites with your other Israeli brothers. And after that battle has been fought and that victory has been won, then you can come back over. And they said, we agree. We will do that. Now, look at verse 33. I want you to see this because I do want you to see how Manasseh gets in here. So Moses gave to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities within the borders, the cities of the surrounding country. So Moses acquiesced. He gave in to what their desire was. He let them have the land on the eastern side of the Jordan. But as he did it, undoubtedly, he was shaking his head and rolling his eyes and thinking, why would anybody settle for the land just this close to the promised land? God wants us to have that land on that side of the Jordan. It blows my mind, Moses must have thought. But if you'll go fight for us, you can come back and you can have this land. Now, I don't know, as we just read through that tonight, what that might how that might speak to you or might not speak to you at all. But here's how it speaks to me. Many times in life, we get, we get out there in life and we're living our life and we develop an attitude somewhere along the way that says, where I am spiritually is good enough. I'm not as full of faith as I ought to be, but I've got enough faith. I'm not as free from sin as I ought to be, but I'm not sinning like I used to, or I'm not sinning like a lot of other people sin. I'm not as free from worry and stress and anxiety and fear. And, you know, sometimes those things get me, but, but, you know, it's just, nobody has a perfect life. And many times in in our lives as Christians, we settle for less than God's best. Now think about this. All of us in life have fought battles. We have fought maybe battles of our health, we have fought battles in our circumstances. We have fought battles in our emotions. We fought all, There are all kinds of battles in life. And anytime you're in a battle, some of you tonight may be in a battle. You say, John, I'm in a battle with my nerves. I'm in a battle with my mind. I'm in a fear battle. I'm in a faith battle. I'm in a, a battle with stress and being overwhelmed. I'm, just, I'm, in a, I'm in a battle where I can't relax. Some would say tonight, I'm in a sin battle. Now, that stuff's bad, but what I'm in is worse. I'm in a sin battle. Some might say that tonight you're you're, you're addicted to some sin or to some habit, and and that's your battle. Remember this. Any time in life you find yourself in a battle, here's the bottom line. You listen and say amen. We don't back down from the battle. We face the battle head on, and we ask God to give us victory in the battle. And so, it's, it's, life is all how you look at it. Uh, here's a person, and they are so stressed out, and so anxious, and so uptight, and they just think, well, see, in their mind, they don't see that as a spiritual battle. They just see that as some other problem that they might be having. And so they go see a doctor, and there's nothing wrong with that. And they begin taking medication, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that at all either. And they do all these things except view what it is they're facing as a spiritual battle. Now, remember what it says in John chapter 5 and verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Every battle you and I face at its core is a faith battle, and we have to trust God to give us victory in that battle and over that thing, whatever it is that we're facing. We don't back off. We just face it, but we face it in faith. So when I read this story, I think, how many times in life do we get in a situation, emotionally, mentally, physically, financially? Some people are in such debt. And they just say, well, this is my lot in life. This is debt. If they have anything, you have to have all this cumbersome debt. And, uh, and, 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 and they, just, they just are in this, they're in this bondage. And yet what you should do is to say, here's what I'm into. This is a battle. It's a financial battle. But I'm going to trust God to give me the victory in this battle. I'm going to make good decisions. And God's going God's to work all this out in my life. So what I'm saying is you have to view battles as faith battles. Now, the whole thing about the Christian life that's different from our natural lives is this in the Christian life there is a sense in which we are to be content with Jesus and in our relationship with him we're to be satisfied but there's another sense in which we're to be hungering for more Now, you know, after church tonight, if you go up to Casole or Jimmy Changa's or some restaurant and and you order the biggest meal they've got and you put away two baskets of chips and you get a couple of ice cream cones on the way out and, and you get home and you just feel like you're about to explode and then somebody in your family says, would you like a cookie? You would say back to them, no thank you, I'm full, I'm satisfied, I'm stuffed. Now think about this. In that illustration, when you're satisfied or you're that full, you don't want any more. You don't want it. You can't hold anymore. You'll be sick. But in the Christian life, there is a sense that we are to be satisfied with God and yet at the same time, hungering for more. Now here's the bottom line today as you think, as you talk to Christians and listen to Christians, many Christians are not satisfied with God at all. Many other Christians are satisfied with God, but they're not hungering any more for God. But there are some Christians who would say, You know what? I am satisfied with God, and yet in me, there's a hunger for more of what I already have. And I'm saying in the physical realm, it doesn't work that way because when you're full, you're full. But in the spiritual realm, when you're full, you still want more. This was what Paul was expressing in that. Philippian jail, or in that Roman jail, when he wrote in Philippians and in chapter three, he said uh, in Philippians three ten that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. You read that and say, "Paul, that you may know Christ." Don't you already know Christ? Well, sure, Paul knew Christ. What was he saying? Paul was saying, "Here I am in a Roman jail in a mess, but my desire in this mess." Is that I could know God in a deeper way. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So when we hunger and thirst, he satisfies us with himself, with an awareness of himself, and yet with that comes a hunger for more of him. The thing about here's a difference between God and the meal at the Mexican restaurant. There is a point where you eat so much Mexican food that you, can't, that you honestly say, I can't eat anymore. But there will never be a point with God where you say, I can't experience any more of God. You see, God made us with that hunger for himself. And so one of the ways that we can gauge our own spiritual health is to ask ourselves, am I satisfied with Jesus? And am I still hungering For more of him. And am I hungry? When we get in one of these battles... Instead of throwing up my hands and just accepting this is my lot in life, am I saying I'm expecting God to give me a victory over whatever it is we're facing? See, that's all a part of hungering more. God, I'm looking for you to give me a victory in this area of my life that I desperately needed. That's all has to do with hungering. Now, that said, take the outline that you hopefully picked up when you came in, and I want to just, I'm not going to belabor any of these, but I want to explain them because I think these are are some of the lessons that God has for us as we learn from Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh, these, these Israelites, some things that are so easily applicable in our own lives. The number one thing I would say is this. Sometimes our problem is this. We're more concerned with what we have than with what God has for us. Now, look back in verse number four. Let me say that again. Sometimes in life... We're more concerned with what we have, our stuff, than with what God has for us. Now, back in verse four, these uh, tribes said, "The country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock." Think of what was the sin of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh? The sin was they were more concerned with their livestock, what they had than what God had for them. God had a, a better land. God had the promised land for them. And yet sometimes it's like that with us. We are more concerned with our money, with our time, with our whatever, than we are with what God has for us. Those, those Jewish people and those tribes should have said when they looked at that land, man, this is phenomenal land. Our sheep would love living in this land. This is, this is beautiful. But if it's this good on this side of the Jordan, what in the world must God have on the other side of the Jordan? You know, one of my, I quote him often. He's one of the preachers I quote often. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have to have Adrian Rogers and Charles Stanley come visit me in my mansion. And I'm gonna have to make dinner for them and say, "You guys help me," and uh, with a lot of my preaching, I'm gonna have to have my dad down there too because I've quoted everything he's ever said. So and other and a few others, but Dr. Stanley has these 30 life principles in his. If you have the his Bible, his study Bible, 30 life principles, and life principle number nine is one of the best ones. And here's what it says: Trusting God means looking beyond what we can see to what God can see. What is faith? Faith is, is, is trusting that God can see things that we can't see. It's looking beyond what we can see. But Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh, when they got there, they couldn't see by faith what I just said. Man, if this is good, that must be phenomenal. They just said, nope, this is good, and it's good enough it's good enough. Our livestock like it here. Look how happy our sheep are here. And they were more concerned with what they had than they were with what God had for them. God had more for them than they could have imagined. What does it say in Ephesians 3? That God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I has not seen, in 1 Corinthians 2, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But they didn't have that faith attitude. Man, what must it be like once we get over that, Jordan? They said, nope, this is good enough. We'll just stay right here. It's a mistake. It's a terrible thing. We've probably all done that. Number two thing we learn is this our decisions affect others. The decision that these tribes made not to go into the promised land not only affected them, it affected the other nine and a half tribes. Look in verse six Moses said to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord your God has given them? See, Moses was was afraid, for good reason, that when the other nine and a half tribes saw these two and a half tribes pitching, you know, setting up their camp and pitching their tents here, that they might get discouraged and not move in. So disobedience by these two and a half tribes, Moses was afraid, would lead to discouragement For the other nine and a half tribes, and he was afraid, and this last one certainly was right, that there would be disunity amongst the 12 tribes because when it all got said and done, these two and a half tribes weren't going to be with the other tribes, so they were separated, and that never was God's intention. But our decisions affect others. Remember this, and I have to remember this. We all have to remember this. When we're making a decision, it's not just, God, how will this affect me? It's how will this affect others? Because God's not going to ever lead us to do something that would be good for us and bad for somebody else. If it's of God, eventually it'll be good for all who are involved. Now, the third thing we see here is this. Our sins have consequences. God forgives us, but our sins have consequences. Again, in verse 23, one of the great verses of the Old Testament, Moses said, but if you do not do so, that is, if you don't go into the land and fight, then take note you have sinned against the Lord. Now watch this phrase, and be sure your sin will find you out. Notice Moses didn't say, your sin will be found out. Now there is a sense in which that's often the case too. But there are many times a person commits a sin and that sin is not found out. It's not necessarily, everybody doesn't know about it. But notice what he said here, be sure your sin will find you out. What was was Moses saying? Moses was saying, If you don't do the right thing before God, that sin will find you out. You know, this is a bad illustration, but let's just play like tonight after the service, you left here, and you went out and committed some sin, some act of immorality, which I know is not going to happen, but for the purpose of this illustration, you go out tonight and commit some act of immorality, and nobody knows it. I don't know it. None of the staff knows it. Nobody in the room knows it tonight. You and maybe one or two other people, nobody else knows it. And that sin, it never gets discovered. It never gets found out. But if you go out and commit some sin like that tonight, the Bible says that sin will find you out. The sin itself may or may not be found out, but that sin will find you out. If you or I go out and do something sinful tonight, when we wake up in the morning, how are we going to feel? We're going to feel shameful and guilty and, and, and all those things that always accompany sin. Well, that's what Moses had in mind when he said, your sin will find you out. What was he saying? He was saying, there'll come a day, may not be tomorrow morning. Maybe, some of it should, the guilt part of it should. There will come a day when the chickens will come home to roost. Your sin will find you out. Now, what sin was Moses talking about here? He was talking about the sin of omission, not the sin of commission, not the sin of committing something wrong. He was saying, if you fail to go in and fight with your brothers, you have failed to do the right thing, and in failing to do the right thing, you have done the wrong thing. Write this verse down in your outline tonight. In James chapter 4, in verse 17, James said, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. To him it is sin. If we know to do good and don't do it, it's the sin of omission. We don't talk much about the sin of omission. We talk about the sin of commission. We talk about sins that that the Bible says we shouldn't commit. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not take God's name in vain. Thou shalt not covet, not bear false witness. No other gods before me. Thou shalt All these things that we're supposed not to do, Those are sins of commission if we commit those sins. But did you know the sin of omission might be worse than the sin of commission? The sin of omission, eternally speaking, is worse than the sin of commission. I was thinking about this today. I'll ask you. The people who are in hell tonight, are they there because of the sins of commission, the sins they committed, or are they there tonight because of the sin of omission the the thing that they failed to do. Well, there's a sense in which they're there for both, but if you really think about it, the people in hell tonight and the people in heaven tonight have committed largely the same sins. You say, what is the difference between those in heaven and those in hell? Well, those in heaven tonight... They did one thing right. They confessed their sins, repented of their sins, turned from their sins, asked Christ to save them, and trust Christ to save them. And you say, that's five things. No, that's all one thing with different parts. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. The people in hell tonight are there, not primarily for the sins they committed, because, again, the people in heaven committed some of those same sins. They're in hell tonight because they omitted to do the one thing that they could have done that would have gotten their sins forgiven and their souls saved, and that is repent and trust Christ. It's the sin of omission that, it, that lands people in hell more than the sins of, of commission. And so, you think about that, our sins have consequences. They have earthly consequences, they have eternal consequences. Thank God they have forgiveness. And I'll say this even with the earthly consequences, we have God's grace and God's mercy, and a new beginning. I mean, in John chapter 8, when Jesus, talking to that lady who had committed adultery, Jesus said to her, where are those who condemn you? And she does, any, does no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He gave her a fresh start gave her a clean start. And that's how he does. But sometimes our sins do have consequences. And so that's what we learn here. Another thing, and I want to get to the fifth point, but let me mention the fourth one first. Our refusal to possess our possessions, and I'm using that phrase, possess our possessions, because their possessions were the promised land. And Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh refused to possess the land that God had given them. For us, our possessions, what are our possessions? Peace a fruitful life, a meaningful life of service, joy. Jesus said, I give you my peace. I give you my joy. I give you every, in Ephesians 1, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everything that's good has been given to us, but we have to possess our possessions. And our refusal to do that and to do exactly what God tells us to do often keeps us out of our place of protection. Now think about this. When the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh refused to cross the Jordan River and move into the Promised Land, they settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? They're still close. The big deal about that is, since they were on what we would call the outside of the Jordan River, they didn't have the protection of the Jordan River. If you look at a map today, you see that God has positioned the nation of Israel where they have, again, the Mediterranean Sea on the west, the Jordan River on the east, but Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh didn't have the protection of the Jordan River. You see, when the children of Israel were in in the promised land, especially in the southern part of that promised land, if an enemy army decided to invade them, they would have to cross the Jordan River. And that was no easy thing to do. And while they were crossing the Jordan River, and many times it's at you know, it's flood level and it's high, it's what well, we've not really tied, but it's, it's, it's high flooding waters. You have to swim across that. Well, when that was happening, the Israelis in the land could see that happening and they could prepare. But if you're on the other side of the Jordan River, what have you lost? You have lost your protection. Remember this the will of God is the safest place that you could possibly be in life. I read a passage today in Kings. First Kings or Second Kings, I can't remember, that was talking about Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And it was talking about how on one occasion, an enemy army came, and it de- destroyed or really devastated those two-and-a-half tribes but didn't even touch the other nine-and-a-half tribes because they had the protection of the Jordan River. And so it's interesting. They lost, when they camped out on the other side, they lost the protection of the Jordan River. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And uh, they lost that protection by being disobedient. And then the fifth and final thing, and I thought, for me, as I was studying this today, I found this to be the most interesting of all. And that is, when we settle for less than God's best, those who come after us often follow our example. Now, remember, eventually, all these people in the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh died. But they had kids, and those kids had kids, and those kids had kids, and the descendants of these tribes. Now, before we leave, go to, before we stop tonight, go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 8. And I want to show you something very, very interesting. I want to show you something tonight about the descendants of the tribe of Gad, the descendants of the tribe of Gab. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28, now this would be worth turning to tonight. This is very interesting to me. In Matthew chapter 8 and in verse 28, it says, when Jesus had come to the other side. Now, what is the other side? The other side of the Sea of Galilee. You can say it this way. The other side of the Jordan River. To the country of, now in the New King James, it says the Gergesenes, but there's a footnote here that says the Gadarenes, and in Mark chapter 5, when we read this same story, Mark just calls it the country of the Gadarenes. The Gadarenes were the descendants of Gad. Now, knowing that sheds some tremendous insight onto this story. There met Jesus two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, "'What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time?' Now, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And Jesus said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished into the water. In our, on our trips to Israel, we've been to this spot. And the guide shows us this cliff. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And when you see it, it explains it so clearly. This is where these pigs uh, became demon possessed, and they just ran, the demons just drove those uh, pigs into the Sea of Galilee. They perished in the water. Verse 33 Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, think about this. The Gadarenes, the descendants of Gad, now we're talking about several hundred years after what we read about in Numbers chapter 32. They now are committing worse sins than their ancestors committed. First of all, the tribe of Gad was raising sheep, right? these Gadarenes are raising pigs. Now, at the time they were raising these pigs, these pigs were still considered unclean animals. Jewish people should not have been raising pigs. This was before Jesus pronounced all food clean. So at this time, the Jewish law would have said, you shouldn't be You shouldn't be raising pigs. This is an unclean animal. That was their first sin, but it wasn't their worst sin. Their worst sin was after they saw how Jesus cast those demons out of these two men, and those demons went in to the pigs, and then the pigs go over the cliff, what what were the Gadarenes thinking? The Gadarenes were thinking, Jesus has now taken away our livelihood. Because he cast the demons out into the pigs, and the demons possessed the pigs, and the pigs went over the cliff, and when they drowned, our source of income dried up. Now, we see here, are you still listen? Say amen. The Gadarenes are committing the same sin that the tribe of Gad committed. What was the sin? They valued what they had more than what God had for them. Now, think about this. The tribe of Gad said we would rather have our sheep than to go into the promised land. The Gadarenes hundreds of years later said, we would rather have our pigs than to have the promised Lord. Now you think about that. The Gadarenes committed a worse sin than the tribe of Gad. Look again in verse 34. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. How crazy is that? Jesus came to town and they asked him to leave. Why they ask him to leave? Because they wanted their pigs that brought them money more than they wanted the presence of Jesus Christ. And it says to me, this last point tonight, when we settle, for less than God's best, those who come after us often follow our example. And we've seen that and we are seeing that now in our, in our world and in our country. Remember this, what we do in moderation, those coming after us will do in excess. And that's what happened here. The Gadarenes were worse than the tribe of Gad. I want to encourage you tonight. For the children of Israel, God had a land for them, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey and everything they could ever need. As I've tried to communicate in this series, God has a similar land for you. It is a land of peace and abundance and provision and, and usefulness and blessing and joy and overcoming and, and victory on every side, no matter what battle we might face. But in order for that to become ours, we have to possess our possessions and we have to put our feet Of faith on the promises of God. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to do that. Help us, Lord, not to make the mistake and to commit the sin that these two and a half tribes committed. Help us not to settle. For those here tonight in a battle of some kind, God help them not to settle until that battle is won, until they're experiencing victory in whatever it is that they're facing. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed tonight. What area in your life do you need God to to give you a victory in? Where do you need a breakthrough tonight? Where do you need divine intervention and a fresh touch from God? Well, you probably already know what that is. I encourage you tonight just to put that out in words to God and say, God, maybe it's with my family, my spouse, my kids, my job, my health, my mind, my emotions. God, here's where I am. But God, this is not the promised land. This is not what you have for me. And so God, on the one hand, I'm satisfied with you. But God, on the other hand, I have a hunger for more of you and for victory in this area in my life. Just ask God for that. And I would encourage you tonight to make a fresh commitment to God and to say to him, God, with your help, I'm not going to settle for anything less than your absolute best in my life. God, there's too much at stake, too much on the line for me, for others, for your kingdom, for eternity. God, help me not to settle in the land of good enough. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen, amen.